Welcome everyone to another episode of One of 200, the New Zealand and International Politics Podcast. I uh, am here, Branko Machetich, uh, one of your co-hosts. I'm also here with the original uh, triumvirate, got Carl Church in the house, got Philip Nanstead. How are you guys going? Great. Yeah, still alive. Wonderful. That's that's always, as long as we can clear that bar for every week, I'm I'm happy. Uh, A lot of stuff happening in New Zealand and the world right now uh before we get on to uh new zealand issues where we'll be covering the the recent pay freeze announcement and the uh fair pay agreements and some other things uh as well as the the issues over migrant rights which we'll be talking to a fantastic guest about anu kalotti of the migrant workers association before we get to uh, get to all of that uh we need to discuss um some momentous events that have happened in in uh the heart of of, of our empire uh <laughs> in in the united kingdom uh where uh, after systematically undermining and sabotaging the the left-wing labor leader jeremy corbyn the former left-wing labor leader for years uh with the express intent to make him lose so they could get rid of him and, and put a centrist in place and, and get back to winning elections under a centrist boring, unambitious, nothing policy agenda. Uh, Labour, the Labour right in the UK have gotten their wish. They, they got rid of Corbyn. They put in place a just a, a, a nothing person in the form of Keir Starmer, uh, who's just sort of someone who looks like a prime minister in black and white, low angle photographs. Uh, and not in colour photographs, I'll tell you what. <laughs> no, or in video. <laughs> uh, or hearing him say anything. Uh, and now they have had their test, uh, which is the, the, these, these by-elections that have happened. And a range of this. local elections. And local elections, that's right. And I guess, uh, how has Keir Starmer done? What, what has been, been the result? You guys have been following this. What's happened? Has, it's has so the, fucked. The test... <laughs> La- Labour is so fucked. And it's, it is so, so bad for... I guess you'd say the Labour right, but you know they'll just they'll just um, rotate. Well, what are uh, and, some of the results um, broadly? We don't have to get into super broadly, super specific uh, stuff. But what's happened? Huge swing to the Tories in safe Labour seats, essentially, alongside massive vote leaks to the Greens and the Lib Dems. Uh, so Greens picking up quite a few. Uh, I mean, for for a minor party, uh, local council seats and uh as if to throw it completely in the face of the labor parliamentary party uh, and the labor right a number of overtly socialist corbyn backing and corbyn supported politicians who have bucked the trend uh and pulled out majority swings in some cases and and like ridiculous ones i just it's really bad <laughs> yeah and i think the 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 big sort of big ticket headline item is the seat in hartlepool which is a uh one of those red wall seats that that labor had not lost in 2019 hadn't lost that specific seat but in general had really uh declined in, in 2019 uh most likely because of the brexit position that the center of the party had, had forced Corbyn to take, which was contrary to his, his traditionally held position. Uh, and, but, but nonetheless, as I said, this seat was held in 2017, held in 2019, uh, and it was um, a seat that Labour has held, I believe, for 62 years. So uh, since 1959, that one's gone to the Tories, uh, which is stunning. 
what's incredible in that particular case as well is they, they knew that, you know, what they kind of broadly call the red wall uh, seats had they'd slowly been using, losing support there over the last few decades since Blair. Um, and you'd seen a range of those go in the uh, 2019 elections. Uh, and they knew it was a Brexit seat um, that they just managed to hold on to. So they put up a devout Remainer as the MP uh, on the basis that he was a strong Keir Starmer supporter. And <laughs> right. I, don't, I don't know what they expected to happen. I, I, I honestly do not. Um, well, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, they've, it's not they've, they've pulled out the result that they've been training for for years, which is <laughs> undermining their own party and losing as much as possible. Like, <laughs> this, is, this is what happened when you put people in charge and their main uh, claim to fame is deliberately undermining the party that they're in. Like, that's, that's how they've been training. And now that they've come mm. to the fight, this is, this is what they're used to doing, right? Right. They can't and, change and direction. Waging war on their most enthusiastic committed supporters in the form of, of young uh, progressive and, and left-wing people, uh, you know, basically thumbing their nose at them and saying, this is not your party. And not even yeah. that, but also like the poor and workers mm, yeah. um, and like just entire communities in the North. Mm. You know, there's a reason I, the Northern Independence Party has suddenly popped up. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also important to note that this result comes in, in the backdrop of, of COVID and the pandemic, which has not been handled very well in the UK. Uh, I'm not sure how many people, how many deaths we're looking at now, but the UK has one of the worst death rates, you know, proportionate to its population uh, out, of, out of developed countries. Uh, so the UK has not handled it well. It's, it's doing okay now because they've, they've gone into this big vaccination drive. But um, for a long time, it was, it was a shame. And just constant, uh, horrible, like, individual mistakes by Boris Johnson. Like, yes, horrific. But- just, just a couple yeah. of weeks ago, you know, coming into these elections, there was a quote reported from him, which says something like, let the bodies pile up. And despite that, despite this, this entire year of horrible, horrible shit, horrible individual decisions, a horrible, horrible man, Boris Johnson has a higher favorability rating in Hartlepool than Keir Starmer. Yeah, Think about that. Higher. Significantly higher. It's not even and close. We can, we can look at, say, the situation in the US where you also had an incompetent right-wing buffoon running a pandemic response who was an incumbent. Uh, and so in, in theory had the same exact advantages of an incumbent that, that say, uh, Johnson would have had. And yet, nonetheless, even Joe Biden, who basically spent uh, the entire campaign, uh, his election campaign, hibernating in a, in a coffin in the, uh, the basement of his house in Delaware and not really doing anything particularly, nonetheless managed to, to eke out a victory uh, because of the scale of things was so bad. And because, I mean, despite starting out sort of unsure how to do it, he eventually actually did pivot to attacking the incumbent and saying, hey, letting thousands, I mean, in the US's case, hundreds of thousands, but letting thousands of people die, bodies pile up, is not a good thing. And that's that's bad, and you should hey, get out of office. Starmer couldn't, yeah, couldn't even do that. Starmer couldn't even do that. Taking a bold anti-death position. Yeah, he said he said very early on. That I support woke, everything woke. the government does. Yeah, incredible. And as that got progressively worse and worse, never really backed away from that position, right? And mm. like, I think to do my uh, one of my catch one of my catchphrases, I have to say that like the structures are very different in the UK and the US, obviously. Like the thing that NHS is best at is delivering the same basic treatment to everyone extremely fast and efficiently. And it's basically been down 
to that like already existing strong centralized health health infrastructure that they've rolled out vaccines so fast recently but the the tory government has managed to take a lot of credit for that despite you know there would have been the exact same under labor if not um, better yeah. but in the in the us there's a much more decentralized privatized healthcare system that isn't used to this kind of universal rollout so even though they are doing quite well and some of that seems to be coming from the centralized government it was never going to be as efficient as the nhs could do What's, and it's just about how do you take credit for that right just a, a final thing on that note as well um, a poll came out today showing that nurses nurses in the uk had swung to the tories Wow. Yeah. Well, yeah. So this is this is from uh, at Politics for All. In the 2019 election, healthcare workers voted 82% Labour and 6% Conservative. In 2021, their voting intentions are 32% Labour, 42% Conservative. Good Lord. That's, I mean, and that, that's Starmer and his whoever is behind the scenes for him. Like there, yeah. there's no other argument you can make there. There's no, no other reason why it can swing like that no and even i mean even now labor people they've been quietly saying it behind the scenes leading up to this because they saw how much of a disaster it was looking to be and they've been saying you know the problem is labor uh, is keir starmer's leadership the labor doesn't stand for anything so on and so forth but now they're saying it openly they're saying it on camera so i mean uh, yeah his, his head's on the chopping block the question is does where's the party go from here but that uh, statistic about nurse uh, support is interesting because I think it also relates to some of the stuff that's been happening a little closer to home here in Aotearoa, where this week the Labour government, the nominally Labour government... The Labour majority government. The, that's right. The party that is meant to be of and for the working class that came out of the union and workers' movements uh, this week announced that in a time when... You have the institutions like the IMF, the World Bank, the OECD, when you have conservative politicians like Joe Biden, all saying, forget about the government debt. Conservative politicians Spe like Boris Johnson. Like Boris Johnson, that's right. And Rishi right. Sunak, yeah. Uh, when they are saying, forget about government debt for the time being, put some money into the economy, prime the pump, get people spending, get people living their lives again, it, the debt can be... Uh, dealt with later on once we're out of the uh, the current crisis let's not repeat the mistakes of 2010 2011 and pivoting, pivoting to austerity a little too early uh, what has that government done it has announced a pay freeze for public sector workers for the next three years after uh, a pay freeze from last year yeah that's right uh, that's that's the thing we all we're all wondering when this election happened what is the Labour government with this amazing majority with, with emphatic win. What are they going to do with this political capital that they have? That, you know, what, what is one of the, the big fights that they're going to pick uh, in, the, in the next year? And it turns out the big fight that they're going to pick is with the country's biggest union. Baffling. What, what are your thoughts on, on what's happened this week? In that, yeah, in bold. Bold move. <laughs> Obviously, it's a, um, the, way, the way they announced it kind of tried to conflate the 60,000 threshold and the 100,000 threshold. So and there's nothing there's but a, intent a, behind that. Well, so explain to people uh, the, the details of the pay freeze and, and how it relates to different income bands. Well, the, um, as befits any typical kind of nerdy liberal government, they've divided it by income brackets because you've got to means test everything in this, in this world. So 
up to sixty thousand dollars, there'll still be uh, the abilities to get increases in pay. Sixty to a hundred thousand dollars, there'll be conditions on that, and I think that's going to depend on the sector that people are in and on individual uh, employment agreements and stuff. And then a hundred thousand dollars plus, there's a blanket ban on increases, which is where you could probably most justifiably talk about limiting pay brackets. Because if you're making six figures, it's hard to summon uh, empathy for these people, right? Despite popular opinion. I think probably if you ask most people, does Ashley Bloomfield deserve to be making even more than he currently is? He earns more than Jacinda Ardern. Does he, does he need to earn even more than that every year? Probably not. I think we're probably okay at whatever $500,000 a year or something that he's making. Mm. But the sixty dollars to $100,000 bracket, I think, is the, is the devil in the detail bracket. Because a lot of those people will be kind of sing- single income family, probably living in um, Wellington Central. That's not a lot of money in that context. Mm. And in uh, record rent prices right yeah and i believe the figures are the median salary for, for public sector workers is fifty nine thousand a year and 80 percent of uh public sector workers make i think less than eighty thousand. so if, it, if you take those two statistics into consideration essentially you the bulk of people or maybe not the bulk but a very 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 large chunk of the public sector uh, uh, workers population is in that 60 to, to 80, to 80. certainly under yeah. un, between 60 and hundred, certainly. Yeah. 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 So that's, that's where it's actually going to hit people. I think the crunch will be yeah, 59 to 80 K like you say. And that's what they're kind of trying to deliberately conflate with the 100 so that they can say, as they did in the house, when Jan Logie uh, questioned Grant Robertson, he said, well, it's because we need to be focusing on our, the worst off, right? That kind of bad faith conflation of that where we're saying, oh, actually, we do want to take care of the poorest people in society because they're earning up to 60K. And it actually makes you look uh, out of touch because you're talking about people earning actually above disgusting. the median wages. Actually disgusting to me it the is. way that Robertson is trying to, uh, and uh, Hipkins are trying to frame this. Well, especially when you consider that what, if the debt is such an issue and, and people need to sacrifice to, to help pay it off, uh, okay, let's say that that's true. So, but you've ruled out a wealth tax. You've ruled out a capital gains tax. They don't want to raise uh, the tax rate on trusts. They don't want to put in even an inheritance tax. So they don't want to tax any, any wealth at all. Meanwhile, they, they last year did as they've been doing for the last, uh, you know, since the first term, they've been steadily raising um, taxes on things like petrol and, and uh, on, on road user charges and, and other things. Uh, so basically they are, they are increasing taxes. They're just increasing it on just ordinary working people. When it comes to wealthy people, it's, uh, we're not going to ask you to, 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 to sacrifice it all, to contribute at all. That's just something we yeah. just will not do. If we're talking about, and let, let's be clear that, all this deficit talk and like bringing down the debt and everything is just bullshit. Like it, it's not something that needs to happen. As you're saying earlier, Bronco, just across the world, all these con- even like quite conservative uh, monetary organizations are saying spend, spend, spend. We have a 5.2 billion higher surplus than forecast and labor tried to announce that at the same time as they were <sighs> announcing this pay freeze as if something, I don't know what the fuck they're trying to do. They're not taxing the rich. They're not taxing capital gains. They're not taxing trusts. They're not introducing inheritance tax. They're not taxing companies like Amazon. In fact, they're giving money away to them. And what they've essentially done is said, over the next three years, 
And um, I, I'm totally happy for people to push back on the framing I'm about to use, but we're going to introduce a 2% tax rate on the entire public service uh, in the form of a pay freeze, because we're going to use that money to pay down the deficit. Mm. Just no, I think that's absolutely right. I think that's insane. Right. Yeah, no, I and, think and that's who, a, smart, a smart way of putting it. Just like, and just like petrol taxes or like any GST rise um, or any other thing, tax that is part of basic needed services, this is regressive to the extent that it will heavily, heavily affect people at the lower end compared to the right. higher end. You know, like you were yeah, saying, well, Broco, over 100, oh, Philip, over 100K, okay, not, not quite as bad. I still don't want to pay freeze on them either, just to be clear. I, I don't well, think we should have that as a, well, as a standard. But The way it's happening now is, is, is basically public sector workers are being divided against each other. That, that's what they decided to do. Instead of playing... Well, that's what they're trying to do, and it's not really... They're, they're playing a kind of class warfare. They're, they're, they're posturing as if they're not playing class warfare. Well, what we're doing is we're trying to... Or, or that they're playing the right kind of class warfare, warfare, rich against poor. But in fact, of course, they are leaving the, the, the rich. And you know, when I say the rich, I mean the very, very wealthiest in the country. They're living in completely untouched... What they're saying to people in the lower ends, in the, in the sort of middle and lower income bands, they're saying the bad guys are the people who are making over 100K a year, whether that's someone who's making 105K like, or I mean, whether it's someone lot. making 500K, you know, we, can't, we can't say, but those are the bad guys. Those are the real, you know, and, and, and we have to, uh, to go after them. And you, you have different interests. You don't have shared interests if you're making 60K and if you're making... But you absolutely uh, do. And like the difference between someone on uh, kind of a low six figures uh, and someone on five figures is minuscule compared to people making millions, compared to most mm. CEOs, compared to most large uh, property portfolio landlords, compared to most real estate agents. Well, it's, because it's we're talking not about where the divide is, and that's where they're trying to create it. Yeah, so they're, they're trying to make the entire discussion within the bracket of income and ignore capital, right? Mm. That's the kind of elephant in the room. They're not looking at how much these people are, like own and how they're actually extracting rent from a system that's been designed to, you know, and not there's not even capital anywhere because no one pays tax on it. Yeah, exactly. But they're not talking about that. They're talking about what's the what's a high amount of income that people could earn. I mean, earning six figures is a lot of money to earn. I don't want people to take that from this discussion. It's a huge amount of money to earn six mm. figures in this country. I'd love to have earned six figures. Really not that many people do. Um, but that by itself probably isn't the best measure of who can afford to pay for things. And the fact that it's purely uh, public sector. I mean, if you wanted to screw down incomes, why not introduce a tax? Why not increase taxes for people earning six figures across the board? Most people earning six figures are in the private sector. This isn't how you would make that work economically, right? What this is going to do is increase incentive for public sector workers to jump to the private sector and contract back their services. They've already more money said as well, this like would not include contractors. This yeah. not, they're, they're trying to do that. And that's why my initial feeling, and especially as more information has come out, I, I know you and I have um, some somewhat different views on this, Bronco. Um, you mm -hmm. tend to think that we're just morons. Um, but the, the way that they have cut contractors out of that conversation, so there's no freeze on contract rates, says to me they're trying to push privatization of public services. It's, there's an ideological bent to this. Yeah, I mean, it, it may well be. I think it's just too early to be able to tell what their intentions are. It, part of it, it could be the start of something like that. I mean, it's a very strange thing to pick a fight 
to, to, to use your political capital in your, your first year after the election to pick a fight with a union, uh, unless you're trying to sort of make a statement or, you know, get some sort of win that you can say, well, okay, now, you know, workers and labor are basically under our thumb. That's typically what politicians that do that are trying to do when, when they go after labor. And in this case, I mean, it, it, I don't know, because it, part of it does feel like they announced this and they thought, oh, this won't be that big a deal. And they miscalculated uh, how pissed people would be, not just people in the public what sector. What focus groups were they fucking using, man? I don't know. I know, but that it does read a little bit like that. Um, but then, you know, you have things like the announcement of the, the $5 billion better uh, government accounts that came a day after the pay freeze. And you think, well, okay, is this... You, you can either read that as an incredible slap in the face where they're saying deliberately, hey, by the way, we could have paid you more, but we're refusing to. Look at this. Look at all the money <laughs> we have. Easily have paid you more. Or, or, exactly. Or you could read it as like, we're going to roll out this pay freeze and then to, to it's going to be great. People are going to say how responsible, how fiscally responsible these people are. And then we're going to roll out this, this other news that actually our books are better than, than we thought, which will just add to that. What a one, two punch of fiscal responsibility. And then they were horrified to find that, uh, that, that people uh, were actually kind of outraged and, and insulted by that. Well, and so the I don't know. Day, it's the hard day, to know. They announced the fair pay agreements. Now that one, that one is very interesting. What, what do you think about the timing there? Because it almost feels like... I don't know what they're doing, I, man. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know which of which of those announcements was at the service of which one. So was it that the pay freeze was meant to make the fair pay agreements more of a easier thing to swallow for, uh, I guess, the fiscal conservatives? Or is it that the, the FPAs are like a sweetener or a way to make the public sector workers swallow the pay freeze. I think it was two, two I don't parts know. of cabinet working like at odds with each other, to be honest. Yeah. I, I honestly think they just didn't, weren't communicating. Um, I think there's an argument to be made that they were going for the, Oh, look, both businesses are unhappy and unions are unhappy. So we must've got it about right. Um, the, the Munich defense is uh, just horrific, <laughs> but something interesting I'd seen, um, that I'd retweeted on Twitter, uh, was a dude who responded to something that I'd said saying, I spoke to a local MP of mine, um, to ask them, uh, what the purpose of this was, like what the strategy was. And their only response was to say, I don't know, ask Chippy. Um, so that's referring to Chris Hipkins. Um, and that says to me that there's a split in cabinet. Um, yeah. and well, it's, yeah, it's, you've got Michael Wood been... kind of pushing the fair pay agreements and whoever's like over in that, uh, kind of, you know, actual labor corner. Um, and then you've got the Grant Robertson's, Chris Hipkins, Megan Woods. Uh, I don't know where our journey sits in any of this now. I haven't seen her for like three weeks. Yeah, I mean, that, that second group that you say, like, that's the kitchen cabinet, right? That's the inner circle of Ardern. That's the problem. And yeah, it, it has been noticeable by its absence how few Labour MPs have been talking about the wage freeze stuff. They, they'll just refuse to talk about it on social media. And fair enough, I would. If I was in that party, there's uh, no way I'd be my name to that He's shit. like well connected yeah. to the union or have like, you know, family mm, that, that who are in local politics. Or... Yeah, that new generation of more, you know, superficially at least left-wing Labour MPs. That's, yeah, it's been, it's been noticeable how quiet they've been about that, but they will speak up about the FPAs. And yeah, I guess that's how you have to measure these things, right? 
Yeah. There's obviously some factional dispute in there. I th- well, I think that alongside this um, so-called leak out of News Hub, where the Maori caucus was enraged at Megan Woods, um, who you know is also part of that smaller cabinet grouping uh, with Robertson, uh, for not giving more or, or putting money aside for Maori in the housing debate. You know, yeah, there, that there, was there are real cleavages here, and I think we're, we're starting to see it a bit more. And I think that the kind of Robertson crowd, which, which you know, is like incredibly neoliberal in terms of um, what they want to do with finance, um, very, very treasury captured as far as we can tell, is starting to feel pressure a little and is making some mistakes. And I, I think that this, this pay freeze is one of those. And I, I don't see any way that they can't walk it back um, without significant damage to, the, to their vote. Again, I guess the, we're just waiting to see. You either keep it in place and you uh, continue to anger uh, some of your core supporters as well as piss off um, the entire civil service and a whole host of, of really essential workers, obviously, you know, nurses, teachers, all manner of other people, uh, people that we want to retain and that we are desperate to keep uh, because of underfunding in the system. Or you walk it back and you uh, basically take a bloody nose uh, from, from the unions, uh, from, from workers. You, you sort of embarrass yourself um, and you kind of, you, you, you undermine confidence in, in your own ability to, to carry out the job because so much of labor's uh, so important is that they're, they're, they're competent and, and capable. Uh, and this does not, this feels like the exact opposite, you know, if we just take it apart from all the kind of moral ethical uh, dimensions of it. So, yeah, I know they're in a tough bind. I'm, I'm absolutely baffled by why they decide to do this. Um, it seems like a, it's just like an unforced political error. Uh, and I would love, I would love to know what the thinking is. And hopefully we'll find out, you know, more details about what exactly went wrong. I, I imagine if, if, unions really fight back as they seem like they will, as, as if the PSA fights back, then uh, uh, if it becomes unpopular, I assume people will start leaking and be like, well, actually, here, we'll, here we'll, we'll explain to you who deserves the blame and, and why this went so wrong. Um, so, you know, I, I wait that moment. Just before we wrap up, um, before we move into the interview, I do want to note that a while back, may, maybe at the outset of this, this parliament, I mentioned that I felt there were cleavages within the Labour Party that could lead to the situation um, if the management from the top wasn't on point and if they weren't moving properly leftwards, especially with a lot of, you know, further down the list people who come from their communities, who come from activist groups, who come from unions, um, who aren't as professionalised, who aren't as kind of tied up in that uh, Robertson uh, coterie. Uh, and I, I didn't think anything would happen this early. And I feel like this is potentially a much bigger fuck up than it looks like now. And it already looks pretty big. Um, I, I think labor are going to have some real, some real trouble internally. And that, yeah, that, that leak from the uh, labor Maori caucus, I thought was interesting purely for the fact that it was a leak. And I don't think we've seen any genuine leaks until now. I think this is the first real leak from labor um, which is really interesting considering it's a majority government and there's a huge amount of power there. And traditionally, the best way to avoid leaks is to have more power. Like parties like doing well, right? You, normally, if you're doing this well, it's unusual to get leaks because you need that level of centralization and strength in a big party. So it's interesting that the Labour the Labour Māori caucus has felt that need to be so dramatic in their kind of expression. Yeah, remember, this is a this is a government that has an absolute majority. They can do whatever they want 
And so this is what they chose to do with it. And just think about that basically anytime anything happens over the next year, this is what they're choosing to do with the immense uh, power that they have, the, the position they're in. Crazy, crazy stuff. But anyway, uh, m- much more to say about that. And we will be talking a lot more about this issue as the, as the weeks go, go on. This is not going to uh, obviously die out. But uh, for now, we need to uh, speak with our guest, Anna Kalotti, uh, who has some very interesting things to tell us about the state of, of migrant rights, the state of, of how migrant workers are treated in this country, and some of the demands that are being put forward by her organization um, and, and various others. Uh, so let's crack into that. Okay, welcome back to one of 200 in the second half of the show. I have with me Anu Kalotti, the president of the Migrant Workers Association, uh, who's going to tell us a little bit about the plight of migrant workers and migrants generally in New Zealand uh, and uh, what they and, and other organizations and unions are doing to to try and get some sort of justice for these workers. Anu, thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Um, kia ora and uh, thank you for allowing me to contribute um, through this medium. Of course. Um, so, you know, I, I want to start with some pretty basic stuff for people who might not be uh, familiar with with the situation of migrants in New Zealand and, and, you know, people who obviously there's a lot going on since last year. COVID has disrupted so many people's lives. But can you tell us a little bit about how COVID has disrupted things for, for migrants uh, specifically in, in Aotearoa? Yeah, sure. So um, I'll start with briefly um, with some of the legacy issues that we have uh, in, in the migrant communities and visa holding migrants. Um, so over uh, the last decade or so, people who um, have been brought um, to this country from other countries, and I specifically say brought into the country, not that they have come here, um, because um, our immigration instructions and policies have been such that the, um, the attraction has been that if, if you um, come on a, a, on a student visa here, for example, and you can then become a permanent resident. Uh, if you come here with a certain set of skills, you can work your way up and then get permanent residence. So that there are a lot of um, um, dreams that have been sold like that, you know, that the end goal always is residence. So, so that's how migrants end up in this country. Um, so over, over the last decade or so, we, we've had uh, people come here and for um, a lot of them, that goalpost has been moved on a number of occasions. And, and you know, what I mean by the goalpost has been moved is the, the government keeps changing the eligibility criteria that um, migrants have to meet to qualify for residence. So what has been happening is um, uh, over several several times in the last few years that you know people get very close to achieving the the residence criteria and then the rules are made more strict on them um, so you know they go from one temporary visa to the next to the next forever and ever uh, I, I know families who've been here for 15 years and they now have children who are ready to uh, to go on to higher education but they would have to get um, student visas uh, in their own right and then pay like 10 times more than um, uh, their Kiwi counterparts. Uh, so, you know, those families are kind of like, okay, my teenager is now just sitting at home 
uh, they, they can't get a work visa because an 18-year-old doesn't usually have enough school skills or qualifications to meet immigration requirements to get a work visa. Uh, so a lot of um, teenagers just sitting at home doing nothing on visitors' visas. So that, that, there's that category of people. So, so, and then, um, you know, the, just the general temporariness and the displacement of migrant communities uh, over the years is, is the legacy issue I'm referring to. And then the other one is um, the exploitation of visa workers. Uh, because um, this country has the practice of attaching work visas to employers, uh, and at the moment, actually, that there is isn't really any other way or, or there aren't many other ways to get a work visa um, other than be attached to your employer. So that's where, you know, employers who, who already have all the power in an employer-employee relationship get even more power when um, they're employing a migrant worker. Um, so that, that's how um, we've seen over the years uh, migrant workers are exploited um, through not being paid properly, um, made to work um, extra hours, and, 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 and a lot of other abuse, verbal, physical, all sorts. And, and um, th this is not just um, uh, Anu Kalotti saying it um, through meeting a lot of exploited workers. Uh, now we have several pieces of research published by um, academics. Uh, if I was to quote um, one that I think is, is very good and valuable is um, works uh, done by um, Dr. Christina Stringer and Professor Francis Collins. And, and they, they've also, um, um, conducted research commissioned by the current government. Uh, and, and yet we, we still have no resolution uh, for the exploitation side of things. So these are some of the legacy issues. Moving on to um, last year or so um, uh, in the pandemic, uh, we have still tens of thousands um, of visa holding workers who were stranded offshore in other countries. They can't come back to New Zealand because they are not citizens or permanent residents. Uh, and those people have, I would say that they are so patient and tolerant uh, that despite all the frustrations and the, the stresses and the anxieties they're going through, they, they are still um, understanding towards the fact that New Zealand borders are closed for non-residents and citizens. And all they're asking for is that this government make some sort of public announcement uh, reassuring those who are stranded offshore that they will be allowed back whenever the borders reopen. So, you know, the, the, they are probably the, the most marginalised people in our migrant communities at the moment, those who are stranded mm -hmm. offshore. And then we have um, the general visa processing delays. Again, um, you know, those delays have uh, become really, really bad in the last three or four years, I would say, where um, Immigration New Zealand is, is, I think they must be under-resourced and they can't uh, keep up with the, the, the workload they have. And we've seen in, in the recent months during uh, the lockdowns where um, further Immigration New Zealand offices have been closed down forever. Uh, and I think staff have been laid off as well. And, and that, that's just quite crazy. Really, it needs to go the other way if they are to process the applications in a timely manner. So a lot, a lot of families remain um, separated because family members who are um, offshore and waiting for their visas to be approved. It's just not happening soon enough. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we've had stories where, you know, fathers have come away from their home country. Uh, you know, they've left uh, their uh, baby girl or baby boy a few weeks old, and uh, now those children are, like, you know, almost school age. So, you know, that, that kind of 
heartbreaking stuff that that goes on forever and ever. Um, and and you know there is just a, a general practice of um, not applying the immigration rules to um, applications in a consistent manner. We, we've also seen um, you know applicants from certain countries being given more of a runaround by immigration New Zealand officials. A classic um, example there would be partnership-based visas. Um, now, um, for Immigration New Zealand, for a, a partnership to qualify as a genuine and stable partnership, for um, most visa categories, um, the couple needs to have lived together physically for at least 12 months. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, we know of many cultures and 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 in, in many, uh, I suppose, uh, people of faith and certain religions where uh, it is not acceptable for um, the couple to live together before they are actually married. Um, so that kind of creates a problem where these people, while they, they are in a genuine and stable partnership, e- even where people have young children, you know, they, they've been declined. Um, the, mm. the reason has been that your partnership is not genuine and stable. You know, in, I, I would say most couples don't really um, enter into um, uh, this contract of bringing another human being um, on, on earth until and unless they are serious. Mm. and genuine about each other. So, you know, we, we have um, those kinds of um, insensitive immigration instructions and policies uh, that are causing problems. So, so that, uh, I suppose, in a nutshell, uh, are the, the issues we are mm. uh, looking at. Well, and uh, I think two, two things that, that I'd add to that as well is, uh, you know, one, you, you mentioned how exploited uh, workers are, you know, having their visas tied to, to employers. And um, I think... We can imagine a whole host of, of, of things that could happen. Obviously, people might not be getting paid what they what they deserve. But also, in some cases, I mean, it really leads to, to to conditions that are not unlike slavery, right? I mean, in some cases, not maybe the majority, there are some workers who who sort of basically just almost get paid nothing, who who have to live under their employer's um, uh, roof, uh, who basically have their entire life and movement controlled by their employer because. They depend on them, um, which is, I think, you know, an extreme example, but it does happen in this country, which I think will shock people. I think the other thing as well, you know, this catch-22 you mentioned of um, the uh, people who are uh, in overseas relationships, how can you how can you even live together if you live in two different countries? The only way to do it yeah. is to violate immigration rules. And so by definition, you can't you can't have that evidence of living together if, if you have two people who have met on different sides of the earth, right? Yeah. But uh, beyond that, I mean, recently the, the government did announce these these rule changes that, that are supposed to alleviate this problem, change things, and, and you know go some way towards rectifying this issue that's been festering for, for over a year. What did the government announce, and, and is it enough uh, to deal with this problem? So over the last year, um, we've had, um, I would say, minor tweaks here and there where they have um, allowed certain um, um, people into the country um, based on um, partnership visas. Uh, I mean, we uh, in, in the sort of uh, about a year ago, uh, quite early on in, in the, uh, the first lockdown in New Zealand, we, we were um, being contacted by people who had, you know, they were newly married or in a new relationship. So their offshore partner or spouse had been issued a, a visa and because Immigration New Zealand had been telling them, okay, you know, because you haven't lived together, you, you can't 
apply for a partnership-based visa. So they've been given like a general general visitor's visa. But then the uh, the I think the, the minor tweak at the time uh, announced was that, you know, people who have partnership-based visas and are offshore uh, will be allowed to travel, for example. So there were all these people who were like, but we wanted to apply for a partnership-based visa. We were told not to. So now we, we can't benefit from what announcement has just been made. So that kind of applies to a, a, a lot of other subsequent announcements and minor tweaks that have been announced. Um, uh, the latest one was a few days ago where it was said that workers who are stranded offshore can come back to New Zealand if they are uh, or not, or partners of workers. So if the person in New Zealand still um, held their visa for another 12 months at least and their partner who was offshore also still had a valid visa could come back. Now, partners who are offshore generally are not issued um, visas for more than six months. Uh, so visas which are valid for six months. Uh, and we know um, none of the offshore applications have been processed and no visas have been issued since we went into lockdown in March last year. Mm. So doing the math there, there will not be a single person offshore uh, who will have uh, who will still have a visa you know their their partners or spouses here in New Zealand there, there are many who have more than 12 months of visa but the people who are offshore uh, I, I, there aren't any uh, or if there are that yeah just the math tells us that there aren't any so uh, making those kinds of announcements is really pretty meaningless you know who does it benefit and then the other one they announced at the same time was based on salary thresholds so um, you know people earning I think it was $106,000 or something you know, that they would be considered as you know having special skills and could be allowed back so you know again and then we've seen other acts you know where there's money involved not just money lots of money like you know the Wiggles was allowed to come here in in pandemic we've had America's Cup sports teams we've had um, hundreds of people come here to, to film for, for large-scale you know corporate giant filming industry so it kind of also signals to migrants okay you know money talks you know, people who've got money that they can mm. find their way in but at the same time we've had some announcements that were useful for example you know healthcare workers uh, essential workers who have been allowed to come back uh, and they've been that they haven't just been allowed to come back but they've had to apply for an exception to travel and then once they arrive here they've had to pay for the MIQ facilities mm. so it, it's, it's not sort of been like a free pass for them either mm. um, so you know I, I, I just call them very minor tweaks that help the few and not the many. Mm. Yeah, and, and there was a, a story recently, uh, I believe the National Radio did, um, about how actually five people, I believe, uh, not only were allowed into the country, very five very, very high net worth individuals allowed into the country, but actually were granted residency from yes. overseas yeah. uh, at a time mm -hmm. when, as you say, there are people who are visa holders who do really critical mm -hmm. essential work in New Zealand, who have not seen their, their children, some of them since mm. uh, they were even born, some of them have never seen their children. And meanwhile, yeah. we're letting through um, you know, a handful, of actually giving residency, saying, please stay in this country. Don't worry about living here for any period. You can just, you can just come here. Yeah. It's pretty pretty yeah. outrageous. Um, Mike Treen kind of 
describe to me the New Zealand immigration system as it's been over the last, I don't know, 10, 10, 15 years, maybe longer. That basically the, unless you have a lot of money like these individuals, the path to residency, the path to actually staying in New Zealand has, has progressively narrowed while at the same time, the use of temporary work visas for migrants has exploded. So we're sort of, we've got this underclass, uh, as he described it, of people who can't vote, but do a tremendous amount of work for the country, um, contribute economically to it. But once their time is up, it's see you later, goodbye. We'll wait till the next next round of people come in. Is, is that a fair assessment, would you say? Uh, yeah, that, that is a very fair assessment. And um, yeah, uh, I think yeah, Mike Treen um, gives um, figures and statistics as well, how um, over the years that the number of residencies approved has gone down significantly and uh, and on the other side, the number of temporary visas um, approved um, has gone up quite a lot. And, and that usually uh, the temporary visas consist of um, mostly like international students, you know, their visas. And, and the other big one is the essential skills work visa. That's where the uh, workers are tied to the, the employers. So no, no, that, that, that is a, a completely apt assessment. And, uh, you know, it's, it's that whole nature of, temporariness and, and, you know, just recycled labor. That's what I call it. You know, we, we keep replacing uh, one pool of temporary workers with the next one and the next one and the next one. And if, if we were to go into a very philosophical uh, argument, um, I think that that's what's um, termed as um, reserve army of laborers. Uh, <laughs> if, uh, talking about a context from, from left <laughs> ideology, uh, you know, and we, we've seen that over decades and decades and you know that that quote from Re reserved army of laborers that that's from like almost 100 years ago so that kind of brings me onto a very um kind of a hopeless place that you know things should have improved in, in the last 100 years not not yeah. remained static or, or not even static i think we've we've gone downwards Mm. Yeah, I guess it's, yeah, it's very yeah. useful, right? Because these people have no political power and, uh, and mm -hmm. so you can sort of do whatever you want with them um, yeah. because they're, they're, what are they going to do about it? They can't vote you out. Uh, can you give us a sense of, of what migrants uh, do in the New Zealand economy, what they contribute to New Zealand? I think we, we often hear about health workers and I think that's a really important thing, but, but really the work they do is so much bigger than, than just even in the health sector, right? Yeah. So I guess the way I view it, I, I view it from um, people's contribution to society. But because we, we live in the, the economic system called capitalism, uh, I'm also forced to view it from an economic benefit or financial benefit to, to New Zealand. Um, so if we talk about the, the dollars first, which I, is painful for me, but I think that's how it needs to be presented because of the system we live in. International students alone uh, up until about a year ago, we're contributing about $5 billion a year to New Zealand's economy. So that, that, that and I think they um, were the fourth largest export of this country. It used to be the fifth, and then they overtook about two, three years ago, overtook from horticulture. So horticulture is fifth, and uh, education, export education is, is, is the fourth. Um, and then all, all, all of the, the temporary workers here, they they contribute to the economy um, with the taxes they pay, income tax, and then general cost of living. You know, they would be paying GSD and, and all, all of the taxes that people here pay, citizens, residents pay. 
But on the flip side of the coin, these people have no access to uh, most of the, the public services that are available free of cost to citizens and residents. Um, so, for example, if, if a migrant worker on a visa becomes unemployed or is sacked or fired, they do not have access to, to um, social welfare. So they can't just go down to their local work and income office and, and go on the benefit. Um, uh, although just a qualifier, qualifying statement there, after a lot of pressure and lobbying from um, ourselves and organizations like Auckland Action Against Poverty uh, and some Green Party activists, um, end of last year, uh, um, MSD, Ministry of Social Development, was forced to bring in a, a slight change um, mm. to the um, Social Security Act, where they um, now provide unemployment benefit of just $250 a week to um, migrants who, who lose jobs. So that, that is only temporary. It, it was until end of February. I think they've just given it a, a small extension. So that, that is only because of COVID and a lot of pressure. And even there, it, 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 the equity is not there. So, um, so if a, a jobless person who's a citizen or resident gets the same amount of benefit, plus they can get accommodation supplements, food supplements and things like that, but for um, migrant workers, no, just the 250 and that's it. Mm. They cannot access the, the, the other supplements that are available. Uh, but other than that, you know, everything else, migrant workers on, on visas, if they are jobless or they're here, they, they have to pay a lot you know they have to pay for their health costs uh, and um, education after high school is not free for, for mm. their children uh, so you know they, they don't have the same facilities that are provided through, um, through a democratic or a social welfare system mm. yeah and well, and and in terms of contribution to society we just have to look around us, you know, we go to hospital, our nurses, we've got nurses from just about every country, you know, Philippines, India, uh, Nepal, Indonesia, you know, all the countries in the world, Europe, uh, teachers, we've got teachers from all over the world. Mm. Uh, one of our protests a couple of weeks ago, a, a person from, a man from Fiji uh, was like, he is speaking on the microphone to other people around him. And um, he was talking about his young daughter and, and his wife who are in Fiji and they can't be reunited. And that man, he's a primary school teacher. Mm. So, you know, we, we, these are people who are nurturing and raising future generations of Aotearoa. Mm. So and and yet we keep them apart from their own families. It's mm. just unfair at all levels. Truck drivers, you you look around. Most of our truck drivers are migrants. You know, getting goods from A to B, making sure the supermarkets that we go to are, are fully stocked. Even in in lockdowns, you know, our supermarkets were fully stocked and and up and running. Yeah, you you visit a gas station in in sort of ungodly hours. Uh, you know that you'll get a hot latte or whatever, and and if you look at who's making your coffee, more often than not, they'll be a migrant. Uh, and the list goes on and on. Um, restaurants, we've got all the ethnic cuisines here in mm. Aotearoa, and you know they have specialty chefs who have come over from other countries. Um, waiting staff in bars and restaurants, they they are mostly migrants as well. Mm. Um, um, orchards, you know, we 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 we've seen so many news articles where we're being told. The fruit um, this season is going to rot because we don't have enough people to pick the fruits. Um, I, I know they allowed an extra 2,000 people from the islands to, to come in as seasonal workers, uh, but even then the, the farmers and the, the orchard owners are saying that we won't have enough people. Mm. And then they've tried hiring 
um, yeah, I think they, for a time being in the summer holidays, they had um, school um, uh, students, but then all of those people have either gone back to high school or gone on to university. So again, we have a shortage. So the, yeah, the contribution is, is, is um, ginormous. It's humongous. Uh, and and um, the, the, the dollars contribution in terms of dollars is, is there, but the, the contribution to society is, I think, much bigger and much greater. Yeah. And Chris Farfoy, the immigration minister, has suggested that in the future, uh, you know, the years to come once COVID subsides, as hopefully it will, uh, that New Zealand will kind of turn, turn off the spigot a little bit on, on migrant numbers. And it's these returning New Zealanders, these Kiwis who are living overseas, who have now come back or are coming back because of the disruption overseas, they can take the place of uh, these migrants and these jobs that, that uh, traditionally immigrants have done. Is this, is this feasible, do you think? Is this a realistic uh, expectation? Um, I, I think it's, it's very complex. There, there's no kind of straight answer to that. Um, I mean, if, if once COVID uh, pandemic, I mean, we're not going to be in this forever, hopefully. And if New Zealand is going to... Um, open its borders. Likewise, other countries will do the same eventually. And migration, I, I think, yeah, people will keep moving around for better opportunities. Um, so, I mean, we've, we've already had a lot of Kiwis return. Um, so, you know, obviously, Kiwis returning have family ties here, you know, they'll have a base, they have families. So that's where people are most likely to go to, you know, if, if somebody has a family in Hamilton, that they're not suddenly just going to go and live in Dunedin. They will obviously mm. first up go to Hamilton to their family. Mm. Um, whereas migrants, because they are so displaced and um, they, they don't necessarily have all of their family here or they don't have as many commitments or ties, they, it's, it's, they move around a lot more. So, you know, if, if there are jobs available in, I, I don't know, Orchard somewhere in Bay of Plenty, uh, it, it would be more difficult for um, a, a citizen in Dunedin to move to Bay of Plenty, uh, whereas it would be likely to be easier for, for the migrant to, to move to that area to wherever the job is. And also citizens and res residents have the safety net of social welfare, which migrants don't. So that's another reason migrants are more flexible and then they move around a lot more. You know, Kiwis, um, yeah, traditionally, historically, the, the, the big OE, you know, that, that's, I think, still the attraction. So mm. uh, people will travel, maybe not as much, but I think they will still travel around quite a bit. And also the, the other thing that I, I, I'm Auckland-based, so the, the thing that I see in Auckland is we're in a construction boom, which is very strange. So, you know, if I just have to drive a few hundred meters and there's like within days they put up a, a block of six new houses or apartments or whatever. And that's been, you know, that they've been springing up mm. everywhere all over Auckland. In, in the last six months, especially, there is a real construction boom here. Mm. So, I mean, what is that for? I mean, one thing that I, I can deduce from it is like, you know, we, we need construction workers. And, and yet we, we did something really cruel few weeks ago, uh, 10 Chinese construction workers were, were detained by Immigration New Zealand and then deported. You know, we, we are told that they were unlawful here. They did not have the right to work here. But um, that, that most of them had been here um, like between 18 months and, and four years. So they had 
been working. The work was there for them. So why, why didn't Immigration New Zealand punish the employers? Why didn't Immigration New Zealand go a step further and document those workers and keep them here? Mm. So, you know, it's, it's a very interesting situation. You know, we, we have this construction boom. And on the other hand, we're deporting construction workers and we are worried about, um, you know, all these Kiwis are going to come flooding back in and then we won't have enough of X, Y, Z. But I, I think a year has been a long time to be able to see where we are at and how it's panned out. So I think, yeah, the, the jobs are still there and the, the jobs and we don't have enough of, of right sort of workers to fill those jobs. You know, employers, and, and this has been the first year uh, in, in 10 years of, of Migrant Workers Association being around that we've seen employers actually crying out for workers. I mean, generally, um, it's it's like the activists or the workers associations or unions who are always supporting workers and, you know, workers' rights. But this time, okay, you know, those employers, they are speaking from a, a different place, but still, you know, that voice is kind of going in, in, in the same direction um, that, you know, we, we, we need our skilled workers. Mm. Uh, and and okay, part part of the problem may be that employers are not prepared to pay enough for Kiwi workers to take up those jobs. Mm. Uh, whereas you know migrant workers are desperate enough that they will they that they will work for whatever comes their way. Um, so I think that there, there there is enough to to there's there, there's enough here in the way of work and opportunities for um, temporary migrants to to be here alongside um, Kiwi workers. So th th this is, um, I'm talking about temporary migrant workers who are already here. I I'm not um, referring to new people to be brought yeah. in. So workers who are already here and the new people who would be coming in would just be their family members, you know, their partners or, or their children. And uh, we're speaking a day after the government announced a, a pay freeze for public sector workers. Tell me how that, plays into or affects the these the, the, the migrant worker community so um most migrants i would say well they are termed mid to low skilled in immigration speak um so most of them um don't earn as high as sixty thousand dollars because that that's the cutoff point for the public servants where like you know anyone who's earning above 60 will not get a, a pay rise in the next three years if I understand that right so um but so but there are skilled migrants uh, skilled migrant category where they will be earning uh, more or quite a bit more but most of those people won't be employed in the the, the public sector I think mm. um so it, it doesn't really affect migrants directly however it kind of um, brings up another um, narrative here that the, the government is potentially kind of out of touch or detached from the, the type of um, world migrants live in. And, and also, I'm a little bit disheartened by the union movement as well at this. Um, I mean, the, this protest that's coming up uh, on um, 13th of May uh, outside Parliament and before that 12th of May and before centers specifically about migrant issues we've reached out to the the union movement to the the council of trade unions and and then there's been next to no response 
And, and we are mm. specifically talking about the working class here. Actually, the, the most vulnerable, the most weakest um, section of, of our working class here. And, and yet, you know, I, I see that news. So, you know, the, that is about sort of um, middle class and upwards, I would say, um, if we're just looking at the, the, the salary ranges. Mm. Uh, and, and also, uh, it, what sort of kind of gives me hope in a very... Um, cryptic cryptic kind of way this thing like I'm thinking okay people who are earning more than 60,000 will not possibly not get a pay rise in, for the next three four years but people who are earning up to 60,000 in in the public sector maybe they will get slightly more equity now <laughs> that's kind of almost the silver lining for me I I, I yeah, it is very crazy to, to, to interpret that in, in that kind of way. But my point is that, you know, we, we've got to focus always, always the focus has to be on the, the weakest link here because we, we, we're only as strong as the, the weakest link in, in, in our chain. Mm. So, so that, that is where we need to be looking at. Yeah, that's the basic, uh, the, the basis of, of solidarity, right? The, the idea that yeah. if, you, if you fail to stand up for someone else's rights, then your rights are also under attack. Even if it's yeah, not now, yeah. eventually it will be. You will be on the shopping block. It's very disappointing to, to, to hear that, that unions are, or at least some unions are not um, in, engaging in that. Uh, mm. But uh, there are some unions that are in favor, and, and, and those unions and your association, uh, the Mi Migrant Workers Association, you have um, laid out a list of demands for the government. Can you give us uh, a, a kind of a, just a brief outline of what you're demanding, um, what you want? And I guess also give me a sense of how responsive the government has been, if, if at all. So we, our demands are quite simple. So we are saying for those who are stranded offshore, uh, allow them back to New Zealand, um, same as New Zealand citizens and residents. Uh, we are saying um, the practice of attaching visas to employers needs to stop now because that, that is how exploitation starts. So we, we need that practice stopped. Uh, we are asking for uh, a, a genuine a pathway to residency for people who are already in New Zealand. So not new migrants, uh, people who are already here. Uh, so we are proposing that um, people who've been here five years or more, they be given this pathway to residence, uh, provided that they meet health and character requirements. Um, and then the other one we are asking for is people who've been here under five years, but have skills that uh, we need, they should also be given this pathway to residency. And then we know um, from 2017 statistics, we know that um, at that time there were about 14,000 um, overstayers uh, in New Zealand. So we are also calling for amnesty for, for people who are overstaying. And, and we um, understand that um, uh, people in that category are largely from the Pacific Islands. So they would be uh, horticulture workers and seasonal workers, uh, much needed um, fruit pickers and, and people who work uh, in orchards. So we're saying give them amnesty. Um, so th those are, are, are basic main demands. Mm. And, and in terms of response from the government, so we've, um, we've been running a petition uh, which uh, we are due to um, submit to um, some members of parliament on Monday, the 10th of May. Uh, before uh, uh, that, we, we've had... Um, so. Last year in May, uh, an amendment was made to the Immigration Act. Um, it was called the COVID-19 Immigration Amendment. 
Now, that was just for a year, so that automatically lapses on 15th of May. Uh, so there's another bill uh, at the moment, uh, or it was um, there until 16th of April, where they want to um, extend that amendment for another two years. Uh, basically, um, it, it gives the immigration minister additional powers so that he can make changes to classes um, of visa categories rather than um, mm. looking at individual applications. So that's how we've had a lot of automatic extensions and other changes in, in, in the past year for, for categories of visas. So um, so in that, uh, we, we, we made a submission and there requesting that, um, yes, we support this um, bill, but we need to see the minister um, using his powers a lot more uh, yeah. and using the powers to benefit more people, not just you know a few uh, minor tweaks here and there. Um, so that, for the first time in in my five to six years of making submissions um, for bills, for the first time I saw lay people, migrants who are stranded offshore, who are here as well, making oral submissions to the Education and Workforce Select Committee. Mm. I mean, it was it was quite. Quite a thing to watch, and even the the, the select committee chairperson um, had to comment on. They they picked a um, few um, oral submissions which they were quite moved by. So we we are hopeful that that process will add uh, to to the the select committee process and and potentially bring a more meaningful uh, um, amendment to the Immigration mm-hmm. Act than than we've seen in the past year. Uh, and then what else have we had? We, we've got um, this protest coming up. So mm. um, we've already made the press release where we've, we've announced that we've got, you know, a, a amongst our speakers, we've got some MPs who uh, uh, will be speaking. And um, they're, they're all uh, MPs from um, other parties, opposition parties. So that's kind of hit a bit of a chord with uh, Labour Party MPs. And, you know, they're saying, oh, why haven't we been invited? Mm. Um, so, um, but we, we have always uh, an invitation has gone out to them earlier today, and uh, uh, from what I uh, gather, the response <laughs> wasn't really that great in terms of you know that there hasn't been a flood of government MPs accepting uh, our offer to to be at this protest and, and speak. But my point is that you know, yeah, there there is a certain uh, amount of um, they have. Are having to step out of their comfort zone a little bit, maybe. Mm. Let me end on a slightly more controversial note by asking you: Is this an anti-migrant government? Yes, that's how it would appear. I mean, it is. It is such a shame, and it is ironic if you look at the beginnings of this Labour Party and where it came out of. You know, I'm referring to the the gold miners in Waihi. And, and, you know, that, that's where we started. And it was a party that came out of the, the workers' movement. It was for the workers. And, and then we've seen, um, it, yeah, a savage government, you know, the, how much, you know, we, we got like a, a public health system. We got so much housing, you know, state houses were built en masse. And, and all of that, you know, fast forward to kind of now, it, it's, yeah, yeah, it's, it, it, it is definitely comes across as anti-migrant and, and you know, bringing in more strict um, immigration policies and not having a listening ear for, for the migrant voices. It, it, it just is not a good look. And, and, and yet at an international level, we have this 
a kind, compassionate prime minister, you know, especially um, subsequent to the Christchurch mosque attacks, we, we, we've got this huge international reputation. And then um, recently how we've dealt with COVID as a country, that has been praised all around the world. But uh, migrants, you know, the whole um, slogan of team of 5 million, if, if you talk to most temporary visa holding migrants, they, they will tell you that we we are made to feel like that we are not part of that team of 5 million, that that is the, the common sentiment amongst migrants at the moment. I mean, I, I've even seen captions where, where they will say team of 5 million minus 250,000, <laughs> because that, that's approximately the number of temporary visas at the moment. So, uh, and, and in the process, um, the other a concerning thing that's happening is that it is giving space to parties like ACT mm. Party and it's giving um, space to certain um, MPs in National Party, you know, who, who are saying all the right things to, to make migrants happy in their speeches, but they are not actually proposing a, a genuine, uh, stable solution for the problem. Mm. So, you know, kind of that's what we've got to keep um, speaking about, okay, yeah, if a political party is talking about your issues, but what is their solution? What will they do if they are to be in government? So, yeah, uh, uh, migrants are, are being a little bit used as well at the mm. moment by certain political parties. Yeah, right. Well, and, and this is not a groundbreaking point, but as you say, New Zealand had arguably one of the best COVID responses in, in the world, dealt with this unforeseen and, and very sudden very complicated crisis in a, in a pretty capable and, and competent way. Uh, you know, so there was something that was extraordinarily difficult to pull off as we see in so many other countries that have failed. And so on the one hand, you have this impressive response to that crisis. On the other hand, you have this complete shambles when it comes to dealing with the issues that, that migrants are dealing with, where the system, the immigration system has, has seemingly not really been properly updated to, to, deal with, with the new uh, landscape that the people are looking at. Uh, everything is complete chaos, and this is a year on, and you have to ask yourself, I mean, how is it that a government that does so well dealing with the, what I would argue is, is a much more complicated crisis, uh, the, 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 the coordination of the pandemic response at home, how is it unable to, to then, how is it so incompetent in this field? And I guess people can draw their own conclusions, but hmm. I... I can't, I personally can't see anything beyond sort of benign uh, neglect, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, it's, you know, uh, having the political will to resolve this, I think that that's what is at the heart of the matter. You know, mm. they, they uh, just don't want to do this. Uh, now, I just want to quickly mention one more example. Um, so Canada, about two, three weeks ago, made an announcement that they will um, allow up to 90,000 mm. people to uh, gain residence and um, those people, I think students who, who have um, graduated in the last three, four years, they are eligible and then certain um, work visa holders are eligible as well. So migrants here like sort of raving on about it, like, look, you know, isn't Canada great and isn't the Canadian government so kind, you know, wish New Zealand would learn from it. But we um, had to then start another education process and inform them like, no, 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 no. They, they haven't done this because they are so kind and generous. They have done it because in Canada, we have a sister organization called Migrant Workers Alliance for Change. And they are made up of activists, community groups and unions. And 
that organization has been at it for the last, I've been watching them for about two years and they have been, you know, out protesting, organizing action, putting pressure on hard out over the, the last year's year, especially. And that's how the government's caved in. To again, ninety thousand in a population of I don't know how are they thirty five million or something. Uh, that that would amount to about nine thousand or ten thousand people in New Zealand yeah, getting yeah. You know, that residence. So it's it's not really a huge number. It's a drop in the ocean. But again, I think it's the the, the PR surrounding it and that kind of sends out that message to people. You know, it amplifies it way more than it is. So same with our. Um, sort of the kind, compassionate government and, and the prime minister at an international level. I think there's a, a huge PR machine behind that too. Uh, mm. And then, the, yeah, the, the, the political will is, is at the moment not there to, to deal with migrant issues. Mm. So that, that's why it becomes even more important for groups like us to actually turn this into a, a bigger movement and gather more momentum so that, you know, it, it becomes... Um, a, a, an issue, a movement that the government cannot ignore any longer. Yeah, absolutely. And and tell us if people are concerned about this and they want to get involved, what can they do? Obviously, there's a protest happening uh, on on May thirteenth in in cities around the country. What else can people do to to uh, contribute to this uh, fight? Right. So um, in the last few days, it's not just Migrant Workers Association. We've teamed up with three other groups and formed a federation. It's called Federation of Aotearoa Migrants. Um, so we are encouraging if there are any other uh, migrant groups out there and they want to um, fight for the same cause, that they consider joining the federation. Like The, the more groups we have, the, the stronger and the bigger we are and the more likely we are to be heard and faster. Mm. Um, so that's one way of doing it. Uh, and the, the uh, other is, I guess, if, if you um, can't join the federation, you, you can come along to events like the protests you mentioned on the 12th and the 13th. And there, there will be further events as well. So just there are people, if, if they keep a lookout on, on social media pages for the Federation and for Migrant Workers Association, you, they'll get information. Um, so keep attending events and, uh, yeah, and, 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 and keep um, having the, the difficult talks because quite often uh, people may not understand, you know, what the migrant issues are or, you know, why this is a problem. Uh, people quite often... Uh, especially racist, it's very easy for them to say, you know, if you don't like it to you, if it's so bad, just go back home. So having a conversation with, with those people and, and um, almost enlightening them about the, the, the kind of world migrants live in. Um, so those are some of the things. And, and, and people, migrants who are actually going through this, and recently um, it's, it's been good that they have taken to media as well to share their stories. Mm. So it's important that we keep doing that too. Uh, at an individual level or through organizations, keep, keep putting your stories out um, in mainstream media so that, um, you know, your New, New Zealanders can't ignore, you know, they, they become uh, our friends and they, they stand in solidarity with us. So from mm. that point of view, it's important that we keep sharing the story. Yeah, yeah and, and I guess people should also think about how outraged they were to see some of the treatment of migrants in countries like the United States and, and even Australia. And, you know, we may not be uh, stealing children out of the, the, the arms of parents, um, but we are separating families. We are making life incredibly difficult for migrants, maybe not in as, as outwardly and viscerally a cruel way, but but 
nonetheless a really brutal way and uh mm-hmm. and if we were outraged about those things then we should be outraged about the things that we ourselves uh have some control over here in new zealand and that, that we actually contribute to through our, um, our tax dollars but um sure. i i want to thank you again for for joining us and uh the work you're doing is, is so important uh and and i hope that this protest and and everything you're doing brings about some sort of pressure on the government to bring change uh, but uh, thank you so much again, uh, Anu, of, uh, Anu Kalotti of, of the Migrant Workers Association. And I, I wish you best of luck uh, with, with everything you're doing. Thank you very much. Uh, and for everyone out there, uh, this has been another episode of One of 200. If you liked what you heard, if you thought it was helpful, useful, educational, uh, whatever, entertaining, something to listen to on the bus, uh, whatever you need it for, please uh do the usual share, subscribe, like, tell your friends, tell your family, uh, give us a couple of bucks if you if you feel like it and if you have some spare. Um, but uh, that's it for us for another week. So we will uh, we will join you again next week to talk about all things uh, politics after all. Okay, thank you very much. Relentless routines, the dying embers of your dreams, is the lie aspirational. Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is a lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism